your copy of the Scriptures to Philippians chapter 4. Our text this morning is verses 5 through 7. Please hear the Word of God. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask for um, your strength as I proclaim your word. I ask for your unction. I ask that uh, you would help uh, your people to not be anxious for everything, for anything, but in all things to be prayerful to entreat You with thanksgiving as they make their requests known to You. I pray You would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus with this peace that You promise that passes understanding. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Just so that I can free my mind of concern, I wanted to let you know that I am suffering with some kind of bug that uh, gripped me on Friday night and has lost five pounds between uh, when it started and now and have had two pieces of toast and a handful of crackers <laughs> since Friday night. So if you see me with contorted ber- uh, face, it's because I'm struggling just a little bit. Um, I've been praying for uh, Timothy <laughs> as uh, I held him on Friday night and let him... Uh, slobber all over my shoulder. So, uh, I've really been praying for Timothy that God would protect him from, from whatever it is that I have. So, with that being said, the Presbyterian Church, in, uh, the Presbyterian Church started in Scotland in the mid-1500s. And that's why we have in every Presbyterian Church people with names like McFarlane, and McKinney, and McNeil, and McLaughlin, and McQuaid. And Scots, as uh, George Mann will be quick to tell us, I'm sure, are as uncompromising as they are cheap. <laughs> and when they became and when the pres- when they became Presbyterians because they were so uncompromising with God's Word, they established Presbyterianism as the national religion of Scotland. Of course, this did not sit well with the English who insisted that the Church of England should be the national religion for all countries under the crown. And so this started a civil war between Scotland and England that lasted over a hundred years. And of course, this is not during the time when William Wallace, you know of William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. Uh, this is not during this time. William Wallace lived about 200 years uh, prior to this. Uh, but this civil war between the Scots and the English over, um, over the, the Scots' commitment to Presbyterianism, it took place, as I said, um, 
between the years, well, I didn't say this yet, between 1662 and 1688. Um, during this time, Presbyterian, I'm sorry, I said six. let me back up. Um, it started in the 1500s, but it became most intense between the 25 years, 26 years, between 1662 and 1688. Uh, Presbyterianism during those years was outlawed. The churches were destroyed. And so what the Presbyterians began to do is they began to meet secretly out in fields and in pastures. They called themselves the Covenanters. Um, In response to... Uh, these field meetings, the English made it a treasonable act, punishable by death, to be out uh, in the fields listening to preaching or doing the preaching. The years 1684 through 1685 were the most intense times of persecution. They call these times the killing times. Hundreds and hundreds of Scots were killed during this time, these times. And the Scots carefully chronicled the deaths of many of these martyrs. There are several books written on these Scottish covenanters. And one of my all-time favorite books is this small book called Fair Sunshine, uh, Character Studies of the Scottish Covenanters. And they just picked out a few of the covenanters to uh, outline their life and especially outline their martyrdom. I want to tell you about two of these covenanters very briefly this morning. Uh, The first one I want to tell you about is a man named James Guthrie. He was one of the eminent uh, preachers during this time, preaching out in the fields, had a remarkable ministry. Um, I have a book by William Guthrie, who is actually his cousin, The Christian's Great Interest, one of the great little books that I've enjoyed over the years. In fact, the pages have started falling out uh, because of uh, reading it a few different times. But James Guthrie was arrested and tried and found guilty of treason against the crown for asserting simply that Jesus was the king and head of the church instead of the king of England. Here's the account of his death. And in the account of his death, we'll see the other man that I want to look at as well. A man named William Govan. Uh, He was executed along with Guthrie. This is the account of his execution as chronicled by uh, other of the Scottish covenanters who were there to witness his death. With hands tied together, James Guthrie walked up slowly the high street to the city gallows. Broad-shouldered William Govan kept pace beside him. One was nearly fifty, the other not yet out of his thirties. Guthrie stepped forward with loving zeal to give his last message. The crowd grew. The crowd stood hushed to hear him say, "I take God to record upon my soul that I would not exchange this scaffold with the palace." and mitre of the greatest prelate in England. And a prelate was like a ruler or a king. Uh, And then he goes on, Blessed be God who has shown mercy to me, such a wretch, 
and has revealed His Son in me and has made me a minister of the everlasting gospel. And that He hath deigned in the midst of such contradiction from Satan and the world to seal my ministry upon the hearts of not a few of His people and especially the station where I was last. I mean the congregation in Presbytery of Sterling. Jesus Christ is my life and my light, my righteousness, my strength and my salvation and all my desire. Him, oh Him do I, with all the strength of my soul, commend to You. Bless Him, O oh my soul, from henceforth and forever. Lord, now let us Thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen Your salvation. And then a copy of His last testimony was handed by him to a friend for his son William when he should come to years. Then further up the ladder of death he went, exclaiming, Thou art, or art thou not uh, from everlasting, O Lord my God? I shall not die but live. And in the last seconds before he was with Christ, he lifted the napkin from his face, crying, The covenants! The covenants! They shall be Scotland's reviving. William Govan, intently watching, stood by. His martial shoulders were squared, gazing lovingly at the dangling dead minister of Christ. He thought of Calvary's tree. It is sweet. It is sweet, he cried. Otherwise, how dare I look up with courage upon the corpse of him who hangs there and smile upon these sticks and the giblet as the very gates of heaven. The hangman had him prepared. The brave soldier, taking a ring from a finger, gave it to a friend asking him to carry it to his wife and tell her he died in humble confidence and found the cross of Christ sweet and that Christ had done all for him and that it was by him alone that he was justified. Someone called called out to him to look upon the Lord Jesus. And smilingly he said, The Lord Jesus looks upon me and smiles. The rope adjusted. He ended his witness by crying out, Praise and glory to Christ forever. A little pause. A little prayer. The signal given and all was over. He too swung in the fresh summer air. Another who had magnified Christ in life had also magnified Him in death. This period of Scottish history was anything but peaceful. But the souls of these covenanters exhibited a peace that surpassed understanding. Our own country is experiencing uncertainty and there are very few who would describe our times right now as being peaceful times. I tell you the story of the Covenanters to reassure you that you can possess God's peace regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in. Now, in saying that, our passage lays out for us certain conditions that must be present in your life for this, for this peace to be present in your life. The Apostle Paul in our passage gives us three conditions. So let's look at the text. 
We see the first condition in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, this word reasonableness, as the ESV translates it, um, epia, epia, kiss, uh, is the Greek word, is it's not really best translated reasonableness. I'm not sure exactly why they translated it like that. Um, the best translation is gentleness. And so it'd be better read, let your gentleness be known to everyone. So the first condition for God's peace to be present in your life is that your gentleness must be known, must be evident to everyone around you. Paul's saying, if you're not known as a gentle person, then the peace of Christ will likely elude you. You know, I've told you many wonderful things about the man who discipled me uh, over the years, told you many stories of his faithfulness and ways that he trained me. A more faithful man I've never met. Um, but one of the things he would do is he would fight to the death for the smallest, most precise, um, small matters of doctrine. And he would be willing to break fellowship with you over something that might be optional or certainly is not the majority view. Um, his presbytery ended up disciplining him for not being loving enough. His ministry is always limping along despite his faithfulness, I believe, because he's not fully understood what verse 5 is telling us. His ministry limps along because his lack of a gentle spirit. If you have a rash, harsh, or angry spirit is very unlikely that you often experience God's peace. And it's striking to me that something so personal, so inward as peace is contingent on your relationship with others. Paul says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. So I ask you, would everyone around you describe you as gentle, as patient, as forgiving? If not, I would guess that you rarely experience God's peace. The second condition for God's peace being evident or being um, present in your life is making your request to known request known to God by um, what I'm calling threefold prayer. We find this in verse six. The apostle Paul says, "Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, <coughs> let your requests be known, uh, be made known to God." So the second condition for a peace-filled life is making your request to God through this threefold prayer. If you want God's peace, then pray. If you're anxious about anything, then pray. Um, 
I'm, I'm referring here to this threefold prayer as Paul mentions prayer and then the word supplication in the ESV, uh, English Standard Version, and then with thanksgiving. Uh, you all know essentially uh, what prayer is. Actually, on the, in the um, outline on the back of your bulletin, instead of supplications, I changed that word to entreaties. I think it better fits the sense of the Greek word. But I think here's what Paul's telling us. We're to take our concerns to God in prayer. If we have a need, if we have a worry, if we have a fear, our first response should be to seek God's help, to pray. But then Paul goes, and when he uses this word supplication, or as I've translated entreaties, I think he's saying, just don't mindlessly pray to God. He wants you to entreat Him. He wants you to plead with Him. He wants you to bring your whole soul to Him in prayer. How many of you are guilty? And of course I don't need to see a show of hands. Uh, otherwise I'd have to raise my hand too. But how many of you are guilty of praying lazy prayers? How many of you have fallen asleep while praying? How many of you feel that prayer is more of a burden than a joy? Just because you mouth the words in God's direction does not mean you are praying. In fact, listen to A.W. Pink. A.W. Pink says, Will the reader be surprised when the writer declares it is his deepening conviction that probably the Lord's own people sin more in their efforts to pray than in connection with any other thing they engage in? What hypocrisy there is where there should be reality. What presumptuous demandings where there should be submissiveness. What formality where there should be brokenness of heart. How little we really feel the sins we confess. And what little sense of deep need for the mercies we seek. And even where God grants a measure of deliverance from these awful sins, how much coldness of heart, how much unbelief, how much self-will and self-pleasing have we to be well. Those who have no conscience upon these things are strangers to the Spirit of holiness. And I think what he means by that last sentence is that everybody, every believer, Struggles. Every believer becomes selfish in prayer. Every believer becomes um, cold in their prayers, mindlessly lifting up prayers without really even stopping to ponder what they're really praying. And he says, if you're a believer, if the Spirit of God is in you, then He pricks your conscience. You know, I agree with A.W. Pink. I think this is what Paul means by using the word entreaties. God wants him, I'm sorry, God wants us to engage him with our whole being, our whole soul, when we pray to him. Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan, said, God hears no more than the heart speaks. And if the heart be dumb, God will certainly be deaf. And then Paul uses the term thanksgiving. This is important because God does not want us to does not want us demanding that He give us what we need or um, 
or just mindlessly praying, expecting Him to, to make us happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. In other words, God doesn't want us to treat Him as a heavenly sugar daddy, if I might uh, put it like that. Rather, He says, come to Him with a thankful spirit. Come to God with a thankful spirit and then it will help you have that humble yet confident and bold demeanor that God wants us to have when we approach Him in prayer. And so, go to the right place. Go to God in prayer. And then entreat Him and plead with Him with your whole soul. And do so with a thankful spirit. Knowing that everything you have has already been given you by God. Knowing that He loves to bless and that He loves you. The third condition for having this peace of God that is promised to us is found at the last in the last part of verse five. He says, after he says, "Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone." Here's the last condition: the Lord is at hand. Now we could ask the question: Does this little phrase, "The Lord is at hand," does it go with? Let your gentleness be known to everyone, or does it go with the second uh, half, with verse six that says, uh, "Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer." You know, where does this little phrase go? It's couched between the two. I think it could go either way. In fact, I think it it uh, looks backwards to verse five, looks forward to verse six. <clears throat> you should seek to be gentle to everyone. Because God is near. He has your eye, His eye on your motives and on your heart, on your actions. He's always near you. So you should always be gentle to everyone. Regardless. Well, I don't like them. They're my enemy. You know, God says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. But then he also says, um, you should be encouraged in your prayers. You should be encouraged that God will always hear you because He is always near you. He knows what you need even before you ask. How does He know? Because He is always near. You know, we just had these elections. The stock market has dipped over the past couple of weeks. Israel is now going to war. Well, guess what that means to a lot of Christians? <laughs> well, they think this is the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Just like a whole bunch of Christians thought it was the beginning of the Great Tribulation when World War I started, when World War II started. Several times during the uh, Cold War, they thought the Great Tribulation was starting. Remember the late great planet Earth? You will have to push and shove and manipulate the Bible pretty hard to make today's events fit into those passages that talk about the Great Tribulation. Don't get distracted by sensationalism. Here is your attitude. It's right here in verse 5. The Lord is near. The Lord was near when Paul wrote this passage to the Philippians. The Lord was near when you were born. The Lord is near today. The Lord will always be near to you. 
You don't need to be worrying about whether the Lord is coming back or not and trying to to time your response. Well, I'm going to be really faithful because the great tribulation is about to happen. No. Be faithful to God because the Lord is always near. Well, what happens when we have these three conditions in place? If you're cultivating a gentle spirit toward everyone around you, if you're praying threefold prayers to God concerning your concerns and your worries and your fears, uh, if you take encouragement that the Lord is always near you, then it is very likely that you will not suffer the anxiety that other people suffer. In fact, I believe you will experience God's promised peace. <coughs> His peace is not contingent on your circumstances. It's not, His peace is not contingent on your level of happiness. His peace... Well, it's kind of hard to explain because the Bible says it's beyond understanding in verse 7. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's kind of hard to explain, but you know when you possess it because it gives you that courage. It settles your soul. It emboldens your faith. It makes the things in this life seem a little less important. It makes you desire God more. It makes you want to tell others about God's goodness because you are experiencing something that other people simply just don't have. Paul says that it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I need to conclude, but not before I give you the really, really good news about the peace of God. You know, I talked about these conditions, but this is not a if-then relationship, so to speak. If you do these right things, then you will necessarily get these right things. That's not the way God acts. It's not the way God um, uh, acts towards you. You don't receive the peace of God by being gentle, being prayerful, remembering that God is near. Rather, you receive the peace of God simply and only because God loves His children. He loves to give peace to His children because He delights in His children. Those covenanters that I was speaking of at the beginning of the sermon, they suffered terribly. I can't imagine living, walking in their footsteps. I could tell you about John Brown and when the, the dragoons, that's what they were called, came to take him away. He turned to his wife as he stood in the doorway and he says, Dear, this day in which we have often spoken of is now upon us. And the dragoons took him outside, didn't even bother to have a trial. And the commander among them said, 
deny Christ is King of the church? He said, no. And his wife was standing there. And the the commander gave him one more chance and had his musket pistol, pistol at his side and raised it to his head. And he said, deny Jesus is King of the church. John Brown said, no. He put the pistol to his temple and literally blew his brains out. And his wife stooped down beside her fallen husband and the commander looked down at her and said with a sneer, what do you think of your husband now? She said, I think more of him now in death than I do in life. She had a peace that surpasses understanding. Christians throughout the world have suffered terribly. American Christians are really the exception to the rule. Uh, For the most part, suffering for our faith is a foreign concept to us. But God loves us no less or no more than our forefathers who've suffered or our brothers and sisters around the world and other countries where they're being oppressed. God loves us no more or no less than them. Christ died for us just as He died for them. And His promises are just as true for us as it is for them. So I want to remind you this morning, the real foundation for God's peace in your life is remembering God's great love for you. Remember, He loved you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die for you. He sent His Son Jesus so much that He sent that He rose Him from the dead for our justification. And Christ sits at the Father's right hand making intercession for us. Remember that He is near to you and that you can have His peace that surpasses understanding. And that peace, regardless of how turbulent our times seem, regardless of whatever circumstances you are living in, that peace will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that You have not only saved us from our sins, but You have promised to bless us and to bless us in ways that we cannot even imagine with things that are beyond our understanding, even this peace that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Father, I know that there are many here who are struggling under their circumstances, who have trials that are great, We do not minimize those. But we know that You are sufficient for them all. And so I pray that You would uh, cause Your peace that surpasses understanding to fall like a strong rain upon this congregation and upon each and every individual. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.